Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Happy Easter. I got to tell you, better than um, anything that uh, you will hear said during this sermon, uh, better than any song that we will see, uh, is those stories you just heard. That illustrates what Easter, what resurrection power is truly all about. So I just want to commend you, church. Thank you for your incredible generosity. Your monies, your service is going around the community, around the state, around the world. People's lives are getting changed in in ways that they would not have otherwise. And that should be a source of holy pride for you. Look at what God is doing through our faithfulness. So uh, again, I will give you a round of applause to all of you. Thank you so much. I know our partners appreciate it as well. All right. So uh, there's this uh, tradition that Christians have done for centuries now. Some believe it goes back to the earliest followers, the first century, an early relic of the earliest church. Because they were so astonished with the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead, they greeted each other with words of hope and victory. And uh, it went something like this. They would say, he is risen. Yeah, okay. And there are a few professional Christians at the 11 o'clock service. I was worried about y'all. Um, but you got it. Everybody together now, let's try this. He is risen. He is risen. And indeed he is. Now, uh, we took a vote though a few years ago as a church and we decided that ain't Kentucky talk, y'all. I've been living in Kentucky for some time now and uh, I have never heard one Kentuckian use the word indeed before. Uh, unless they're reading Shakespeare and Kentuckians don't read Shakespeare. So we decided to take some artistic liberties together as a church and we uh, put together a form of this ancient creed that I feel like is much more culturally relevant. It's one that we can proudly pass on to the next generation of Kentuckians together as a church, amen. So uh, here's our Kentucky version. I'd ask you to participate with me now. He gone. He gone. I said he gone. And indeed, he gone. All right. Feels much more natural, doesn't it? Um, Some of y'all too good at that, by the way, but that's why I love Northeast. Now, we joke, we joke, but it's actually true. Scholars agree that Christians, the earliest Christians, had a simple creed that they would share with one another to testify to the resurrection. Uh, In fact, many scholars believe that close to the exact wording of that uh, has been preserved for us by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, Paul writes the following to the church in Corinth, which he started, okay? He says, uh, let's go Easter green today. How about that? Because now I would uh, remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news, all right? This is also what we might call the gospel. Same Greek word here. The good news that I proclaimed to you, which you in turn received. Now, real quick now, let me show you a map here. 
Okay, this is a map of Paul's second missionary journey, his second church planning trip, where he travels sort of around the Mediterranean Rim. You can see planning, and ch planning churches a lot of times in urban areas that hadn't received Jesus yet. And Corinth is right here in modern day Greece. You can see that's the boot of Italy right there to kind of orient you on the Mediterranean. And uh, Paul goes there. He spends some considerable time there. He starts the church there, leads many to Jesus there. Then he leaves, right, to go plant other churches. And when he leaves, in order to check back up on the church, he'll, he'll get reports from people who are still there and then write letters. So 1 Corinthians is the first epistle or correspondence that we have of Paul. He's gotten a report from a lady named Chloe. The church has got all sorts of issues going on and he starts addressing the issues in this letter one by one. And when he gets to the end of the letter in order to kind of tie a bow on things and close it up, he reminds them of what he had already proclaimed to them when he first came there, the gospel, right? Now back to the slide here. He says, you guys received it. It is the gospel in which also you still stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. And then he says this, this is super interesting. Uh, he says, for I handed on to you as of first importance, what I in turn had received. So he says, this isn't just what I taught you when you became Christians. When I was converted, this is what they taught me. Like if the early church had a new members class, what Paul is about to say next is like day one of the class. If Paul wrote for us a how to plant a church and evangelize the lost 101 textbook, this would likely be in chapter one. Again, it's what he calls the gospel, the good news, the euangelion. And many scholars believe this simple creed goes back to literally months after the first issue, uh, Easter. Here's what Paul says. This is a creed. He said that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. We might call this day one. And that he was buried. We might call this day two. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. We might call this day three. Died, buried, raised on the third day. This is the gospel. This is core to who we are as Christians. Now, Paul understands it's kind of hard to believe, you know, a resurrection. So he goes on after that to give us the receipts. You know what I'm saying? He says, this risen Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12. Uh, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are alive. Some are dead, you know, like a few of them died, but most of them are still alive, so you can go talk to them. Uh, then he appeared to James, which is Jesus' brother, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Right. So what's the gospel? Well, Paul says, this is the gospel. Easter weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Now, I want to point out something interesting here in these first few verses. Paul actually assumes that the Corinthian church has accepted the gospel on, on two levels, if you will. 
Uh, he assumes that they've accepted the gospel historically, on a historical level. Again, we might call these, um, in terms of our holy days, Good Friday, Black Saturday, and Resurrection Sunday. But the gospel is a historical event, right? This is why he's so concerned to give you the eyewitnesses. But he also assumes that the Corinthians accepted the gospel on a personal level. This is why he says, this is the good news in which you also stand, like right now through which you are continually being saved, like right now, if you hold firmly to the message in the future. So let me say it to you like this. Let's just simplify it for you. For Paul, accepting the gospel involved two things. A one-time declaration of historical belief in the gospel event and an ongoing declaration of personal commitment to a gospel life. This is Christianity this is Easter, and this was the 101 for them. And if it was the 101 for them, it was good enough for them, it's good enough for us today. So here's what I wanna do with the rest of our time today. I, I wanna show you how to do this. Show you how to do it. I wanna show you how to be a Christian. Okay. Now, some of you know, some of you do not. I'm not gonna make you be a Christian if you're not. Okay. If you came to church today, not because you're a Christian, but because you're your grandma asked you to come. Good for you. You are a good granddaughter. You are a good grandson. If you came today because a pretty girl invited you, um, I want you to know that we told her to do that. <laughs> she got you, bro. She got you, right? And I'm glad, I'm glad you're here. I ain't gonna make you be a Christian. I'm not gonna make you, but I do wanna teach you how so that when God comes back, you cannot blame us. God, they never told me. Not after today. It's on you, man. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Sort of. All right, so there's, a, there's an intellectual historical part. There's also like an emotional experiential part. So a little bit for everybody in the room. Let's start with the nerd stuff first. First, the historical. Uh, in order to be a Christian, Paul says very clearly, you have to declare a belief in, a, in the historical gospel event, right? And that is hard to believe in if you're a thinker. I get it. It's hard to believe in because there's a 2,000 year time gap between then and now, and it happened on the other side of the world. And it's hard to believe because of the supernatural nature of it. A resurrection from the dead? Like we know dead people stay dead, right? And, and we're gonna address some of that today, but I want you to see first and foremost that this is one of the things that makes Christianity truly unique compared to other major world religions. Okay, most religions start by saying, do these things for God and then he will accept you. But Christianity flips that on its head. And it starts by saying, God has done these things for you. So will you accept them? And I love that. That's a beautiful vision of God. We have a God who pursues us, a God who makes the first move. I'll tell you what, you might not believe it's true, but you kind of want it to be true. Like if there's a God out there sitting on the cosmic throne of the universe, that's what I want his character to be like. Either way though, it's still hard. It's still hard to wrap our minds around. Uh, so how do you do that, Tyler? How do you get to a place where you accept the historical validity of it? Well, I would suggest to you that you do that, you get to historical confidence in this in the same way that you get confidence about any historical event, all right? You gotta honestly evaluate the evidence available. Now I can't present all the evidence today, but let me just present like a little bit of it for you. Uh, okay, I used to have a, a lawyer friend who was in a Bible study with me. He would crack me up because uh, uh, he, you know, he was Christian, but he loved to push me, he loved to push the group. He'd be like, well, how do you know? 
How do you know it happened? You know, like we could talk about anything, right? Talk about Moses parting the Red Sea. Talk about Jesus feeding the 5,000 with the little kid's lunchbox. He'd be like, well, how do you know? Because last night I was studying for Bible study on Reddit and there was a theory and like, you know, and he's, this is how, one time he came into the, the study and uh, he was like, hey, uh, yesterday on Google, I found out that there are people who believe in a flying spaghetti monster as God. They had a Wikipedia page. They're called, can you, can you see this? Where are they? The Pastafarians. Somebody said it before. Who said it? Do we have Pastafarians in our midst? Probably not because this is a gag religion just to sort of make fun of religious people. All right, but he was like, I heard about the Pastafarians and you tell me they got their truth, you got your truth. How do you know that yours is better? Now, I appreciate the push, right? I really do. Now let's, let's get these guys off there. But I would always say to the same thing. I'd be like, look, man, you're a lawyer. How do you know? You know how I know. It's the evidence. All truth claims are not created equal. Okay, a judge or a jury doesn't say, well, they got their truth and they got their truth. So thanks for coming out today, but everybody go home now, right? No, you weigh the evidence. Okay, so let me ask you, all right? Uh, how do you know? that Abraham Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address November, 1863. How do you know? Were you there? Did you meet him? Did you know Abraham Lincoln? Did you know him? No, of course not. And it's a silly question because we all believe that Abraham Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address, right? History is a science. You know this, right? It's a social science. So it's not after unambiguous mathematical solutions like some sciences are, but it's a science. And if you get a good historian or a good team of historians that do history well, they can put together the artifacts, they can put together the historical traditions that have been passed down and give you a relatively reliable picture of who somebody was and what they did. And that's how we know, right? The traditions and the artifacts have been passed down. Now, did you know the same is true of Jesus? Same is true of him. Christians actually went to great lengths to present a respectable and reliable accounting of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection by the standards of their time. They did. And this is what Paul is after in 1 Corinthians 15 when he starts listing off all the eyewitnesses. He's trying to give you proof, the best sort of proof of his time. Now, Richard Bauckham is an English historian, an expert in the first century. And he made the case in this like doorstopper of a book that eyewitness testimony was the most credible type of evidence that you could have in the first century. You see kids, back in the old days, when I was a kid or in the even older days, when Jesus walked the earth, there were no camera phones or internets or the Facebook or the Google. It wasn't around. And you actually had to watch life with your own two eyes, like just look at it. I will never forget this picture right here. This is a picture of LeBron James, the GOAT. Uh, this year, breaking Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's uh, scoring record. Uh, and it's also a picture of thousands of people, come on now, watching him do that through a screen. Now I'll go ahead and tell you, in the lower level there, 
Seats started at $1,062. The most expensive seat in the gym was $92,000. And yet here people are getting the same view that their friend's gonna get later on Instagram for $0. Now I tell you who paid $92,000. Come on now. It's this guy right here. Cause he's the, oh, come here. Yeah, this guy right here. Cause he's the only one. Come on, hold still. Can I, can I circle him? All right, I can't circle him, but it's this guy right here, all right? Because he's the only one who's not looking through his phone. This, by the way, is Phil Knight. He's the founder of Nike. And the only person in the gym with more money probably than LeBron. Now, anyways, back in the old days, my point is when Jesus was around, they had to watch life with their eyes. And if you couldn't be there, you had to find a reliable eyewitness to tell you about it. So what Paul is doing is he's taking the most credible form of evidence from his time and building a case. Go ask the 500, go ask Peter, go ask James, Jesus' brother. You've heard me say this before, but I actually believe that this is some great, some of the best evidence for the resurrection. Jesus' brother, James, during his ministry did not believe in Jesus, then afterwards all of a sudden converted. Think about it. What would it take for your brother to convince you that he was God in the flesh. Or your sister. They would have to rise from the dead. I'm just saying. That's the only way. Because you've seen your you've seen your brother. You've seen some stuff. We ain't gonna talk about that in church, right? So Paul, by the way, is not the only one in scripture who shows us the high value of eyewitness testimony. Uh, it's all over the New Testament accounts. Peter Williams is an expert in the history and languages of the first century. And uh, he gives us a list of some of the multiple attestations of Jesus's ministry. The resurrected Jesus is recorded as appearing in Judea and in Galilee, in town and in the country, indoors and outdoors, in the morning and in the evening, by prior appointment and without prior appointment. These are the receipts of the risen Jesus. Go check up on it, y'all. He was uh, reported to be seen up close and in the distance on a hill and by a lake, sitting, standing, walking, eating, and always talking. He appeared to individuals and he appeared apparently to groups of up to 500 people. And he also appeared to groups of men and groups of women. So again, by the standards of the time, the resurrection had loads of, of ev available evidence. Now, the one curveball here in the first century though um, is this uh, last bullet I put here, okay? Uh, it's the women, it's the women. See, in all the gospel accounts, the first people who saw the empty tomb and the risen Jesus were who? Were the women, right? Many of them uh, given by name. And while I don't believe this today and neither do you, in that patriarchal society in the first century, they did not consider women to be credible witnesses. Women were not trusted. In that society, it would have been like saying, the kids told me, seriously. Celsus was a second century Greek philosopher who did not like Christianity at all. And one of his arguments against Christianity was, are you gonna believe the women? Now, clearly this guy was not married. Or maybe he was married, but not anymore, right? <laughs> but uh, in, in my humble opinion, I actually think the fact that they were the first eyewitnesses makes the story more believable, not less. Because see, if Christians were making it up, they would have made up, well, a perfect story. 
They certainly wouldn't have put women as the first eyewitnesses. They wouldn't have put uneducated Galilean fishermen who just abandoned Jesus two days earlier as the first eyewitnesses either. They would have put somebody respectable there in that role. But they did it because that's not how God wanted it. God wanted the women to see him first. And this was the story that they had. So that's the story they told. So again, Christians went to great lengths, great lengths to present. Uh, respectable and reliable accounting of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection by the standards of their time. They dared people, check the receipts. They told them, man, this ain't no joke. Now, I got a question for you guys. Um, do any of you recognize this gentleman right here? This is church. This is Rick Patino. As you can tell by some of the groans in the room, he's one of the more polarizing people in the history of the state of Kentucky. And you know why? Because in 2013, he won a national championship for the University of Louisville Cardinals basketball team. Okay. Clapped louder than that than you did for the offering earlier. Anyways. Um, and I remember that team. I remember that championship. It's a good team. What a lot of people forget is that almost 30 years ago in 1996, he won another national championship for the other team, the University of Kentucky Wildcats. You guys want to do a cats and cards round of applause competition or something? I mean, it's like, I can feel some, I can feel it in the room right now. Now, here's the, I remember that team too. I remember the 96 cats. I remember Tony Delk, Ron Mercer, Antoine Walker, all them, right? Now I got a question for you. What if a few people today came out with a story here in the state of Kentucky about how uh, 30 years ago in the Continental Airlines Arena in New Jersey, the Cats didn't actually win the national championship, barely. It was actually an alien invasion. It was New Jersey after all. They, the aliens came, they abducted Rick Patino. The, the monsters from Space Jam came down and took over the players' bodies. And that's how the cats won. I'm telling you, that's how they won. Now, I'd say, if a story like that came out, a lot of people would be like, oh, okay, come on, that's a little bit ridiculous. But even if it started gaining traction and people were like, well, maybe it happened, all right? You know what we could do? We could go and check the receipts because most of the people who were there at that game are still alive today. And they would say, hey, I don't remember everything that happened, you know, 25, 30 years ago, but I certainly would remember if aliens came. Now, do you get my point here? You can't just say somebody rose from the dead within 20 years of the resurrection without expecting people to check up on it. You can't just say somebody fed 5,000 people in a community without expecting them to go to that community and ask, did he really do it? You can't just say that you know, somebody raised a man from the dead in Bethany without expecting people to go there and ask, well, who, where's the guy? And like, tell us the story, right? You can't say that the tomb is empty unless there's no body in the tomb. So y'all, the, the evidence is there. And again, this is a fraction of the evidence, but I just wanna give you a taste of this. If the resurrection uh, was a lie, I'm telling you, it was a really, really bad lie with very, very good results. I mean, a resurrection? That's crazy. People back then were not naive. They know what we know today, and that is that dead people stay dead. 
A God-man? Understand, it was a critical mass of Jews who started Christianity. They believed that God was wholly other. The idea that, that God would become a man was heretical to them, right? Heretical. And yet here was a critical mass of Jews believing that Jesus, a carpenter from Nazareth, was God in the flesh? Are you kidding me? Mosaic law and circumcision were essential to them. Yet all of a sudden they were saying the law was fulfilled. Dietary laws and purity codes were essential to them. But all of a sudden Jews and Gentiles were gathering together around the same table and eating. Sabbath was on Saturday. All of a sudden they moved it to Sunday. Passover was a 1200 year old sacred tradition. Yet all of a sudden they redefined it around this crucified criminal. Oh, and by the way, crucifixion was death by torture. It was defeat under the oppressive hand of the evil empire. Yet today, fast forward 2000 years later and we wear crosses around as symbols of victory. How do you explain it? How do you explain the historical momentum and the historical madness? Well, Paul says it's because he's risen. He rose from the dead and he actually expects us to believe it as well. Now that's historical proof, just part of it. Let's shift gears here. And I wanna go to, uh, to the personal side of it. You got the historical, what about the personal, Tyler? Why should I personally commit to the gospel? Make my stand on it, as Paul says. Hold firmly to it, as Paul says. Well, in my humble opinion, I believe the reason why you need to do this personally is because eventually you're gonna need it. You are gonna need the power of the gospel. You are gonna need the spiritual resources eventually that only the gospel can provide. So, you know, um, I have found that, that when you're, you're younger, you can tend to believe that you're like invincible. Maybe you don't believe you're invincible. You just don't think about your own mortality all that much, right? Like you are fearless of death. You can eat anything you want to and like wake up the next day and your body just goes back to normal. Or you might even lose a pound, right? It's amazing. You also think that you kind of got the world figured out. You know, everything that's wrong with the world is your parents' fault, clearly, or the previous generation's fault because you haven't got a chance to lead yet. But one day when they let you lead, you're gonna fix all the things they got wrong, right? Your kids, you don't have kids yet, but you have a master's degree, so you know everything, right? And one day when your kids talk about your generation, they're gonna say hundreds of thousands of years of human beings got it wrong until my parents, they finally got it right. It's, it's like the naivety of youth, right? I, look, I, I've struggled with this. I remember in 2012, I had almost zero experience in ministry and I got hired here at Northeast and I had a master's degree and I knew Greek. And so within two weeks, Bob Cherry was my predecessor. He had 30 years of experience in ministry, but within two weeks, I knew everything that was wrong with y'all and I had a list on how to fix it. Now, fast forward about three and a half years later to 2016, and he handed the, the baton of leadership off to me. And I remember the week leading up to that, I was like, are you sure that we should do this now? Maybe we should wait a few years because I have no idea how to do this, man. So look, my, my point is this, like t time has a way of sort of humbling 
As you start to get older, here's the deal. You start to realize that you are not invincible. Like you sneeze one morning and you pull a muscle in your stomach, right? Or you wake up wrong and you got to go to the chiropractor for four months and pay so that you can look this way again. Thousand bucks, right? You can't eat fast food whenever you want to. You can't just drink every night, right? You start realizing that you don't know it all and that you get some stuff wrong sometimes. Okay, more than some, a lot. You're not necessarily a a very good person. You just aren't. You've been trying this whole be good thing for 40, 50 years now, you still struggle with it. You still fail, you still sin. Like you've raised three kids at this point on how to be good, but you can't even follow your own rules and they point it out every day, right? I've just found that unless you have incredible humility when you're young or incredible mentors or if you go through some incredible adversity when you're young. Otherwise, it just takes life experience before it really starts to dawn on you. Like how much you need a savior who can save you from yourself. Because you ain't good enough to be the Lord of your life. You don't make a very good God. By the way, how's it going for us, America? How's it going? Temperature check, how's it going? Because last time I checked, we got all the freedom, like all the freedom in the world, loads of freedom, freedom to do whatever, like all the self-autonomy, you can be your own God, you can do whatever you want with your life, with your finances, with your family, with your body, fill in the blank, do, you do you, right? You can do what you want. Not only do we have all the freedom, but we have all the luxuries and all the technologies that any generation before us could have ever dreamed of. You got it, how's it going? We're still unsatisfied, aren't we? still eaten up by the cancer of greed and discontentment, mentally ill at historic levels, burnt out, self-medicating, addicted to screens, incapable of healthy relationships, and also incapable of committing really to anything. Everyone's walking around on this battlefield we call life just wounded because we thought we could run our own lives. We thought we could make our own world, but eventually we figure out we just aren't very good at playing God. It's because we weren't made to. So I'm being a little cheeky here, but for real, if you think about this, you start to realize that you need the gospel in your life. That's what that feeling is inside of you, by the way, that disorientation or disillusionment, that low hum of discontentment that you just sense every day, like that's your heart longing for the gospel. And I'm telling you, the gospel is the very best explanation for the sin and the suffering in your life. And it is also the very best way to heal it. You know what I call this? Um, I call this the gospel cycle, the gospel cycle. I believe the gospel is the macro story of human history. Jesus died, buried, and risen. But I also believe it's the micro story of every human life that throws themselves into the arms of Jesus. Look, life with the risen Jesus does not excuse us from the pains of Friday or from the rock bottom and darkness and death of Saturday, does it? But it gives us the power of Sunday, praise God. It turns the challenges of life into a fiery furnace that makes us more mature. It helps us face seasons when we feel stagnant or defeated, when we're scorned by the people that we love, when we're depressed, unmotivated, or we just feel like we can't go on. In those seasons, we actually learn to draw strength from God. We find peace that passes understanding, joy that transcends circumstances, and a hope in heaven. And we see God's purposeful hand actually working the hard things in our life 
for the good, empowering us into holiness, stretching us to the limits of human potential. And the process repeats itself over and over and over and over because we suffer and we fail over and over and over and over. But if we lean on God, we are resurrected as new and qualitatively better people over and over and over and over. Praise God. See, resurrection power isn't just hope for the future, it's actually hope from the future that you can bring into the present. I'm gonna tell you, let's just call it like it is. If there's no resurrection, life's a pill, y'all. It is. It's just the acquisition of wounds, then you die. Ouch, 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 dead. That's life <laughs> without hope. If you had a rough childhood, you get family wounds. Then if you're hurt by the church, you get religious wounds. Then if you're hurt by a lover, you get romantic wounds. Then if you fail at work, you get rejection wounds. And what happens is you just go the rest of your life trying to medicate all these wounds with like fantasies or substances or experiences that just mask the pain for like a second. And then you realize this is just masking the pain for a second. And you realize that nothing can really fix you. And then all of a sudden your body starts to acquire the woundedness of age, this thing called aging. And father time starts to bend and break your body like cancer, disease, whatever it may be, right? Then you die. And none of it really mattered anyways. Sweet story, right? Hey, I have a sweeter one. You might even call it good news. It's the gospel. And what I love about the gospel is that it is painfully realistic. Friday and Saturday are real. But the gospel is also supernaturally optimistic. Sunday's coming. And if you live in Christ, it will keep coming again and again and again and again until he comes again. So Paul says, I'm asking you to personally commit. Make your daily stand next to the empty tomb. You won't be sorry. Now, I can think of no better illustration of this, the gospel cycle, than one of our global partners, Earth Mission Asia. Jason talked about them a little bit earlier uh, these people are incredible. So Earth Mission Asia works in some of the most dangerous war-torn jungles of Myanmar to empower the Karen people to bring healthcare to their villages. Um, and if you don't pay attention to global politics, in 2021, there was a military coup there. They've been basically living in civil war-like conditions. So our people there are daily risking their lives to bring Jesus in medicine. They have a PA program there where the brightest locals are, are brought in from the villages, trained up to be PAs and then sent out back into their villages, which is super amazing. In 2019, we gave them $50,000 to build the Rain Tree Clinic, which is a clinic that's serving up to 1,000 patients a month right now and also training uh, these PAs up. And this Easter, we were able to add an additional 50,000 uh, so that they can continue to expand their work there. So amazing. And what they do there illustrates the gospel cycle so well. So I wanna to read to you a message one of their leaders sent to me. I'm just gonna read it because his, like he's, he's just a poet, man. His words are so good. This is what he says. He says, it's one headache after another here at the Rain Tree Clinic. Now there's a vicious rumor spreading. One that could finish us for good if it gets out. Here it is. People and students who stay at the Rain Tree Clinic for a long time slowly become more beautiful. Jeez, he says. Can you imagine running a hospital or school under such a threat? Nobody will want to leave. I'm sorry, sir. You're fully recovered. There's nothing wrong with you anymore. No, sir, you must go home now. 
Or, uh, you know, don't cry, dear. You passed your final exam. You can graduate. No, dear, you must graduate. You have to graduate. He writes, uh, students teach each other uh, or uh, tease each other, uh, saying that they used to be ugly, but now they're looking beautiful. Now I could point out to him, he says, that the jungle environment has more than likely helped him lose a few pounds. Or I could also point out to him that after a few years living with limited internet and muted media influence, their standards of beauty might have changed for the better. Either way, despite our best efforts, students seem to find each other increasingly attractive. Several are planning to get married after graduation. These students seem to be able to find love in a dirt trench hiding from bombers or in an operating room knee deep in blood. What's wrong with them, he says. Now the question is, what do I do about this vicious rumor? Maybe I need to look at it from a different angle. Maybe it's a psychological problem and I just need to remind people of their true circumstances. Hey y'all, you have moved to the jungle. You're living in tents. There's no restaurants, shopping malls, movie theaters, or internet. You will wash your clothes in a bucket. Say goodbye to privacy. Every shower's freezing cold. And the fact that many of you claim to actually like cold bucket showers is not reassuring at all. Just proof that your sensory nervous system has already been hopelessly damaged. Oh, and don't forget the insects, he says. The insects here carry malaria and typhus. One touch of a certain caterpillar can cause itching that would trump the curse of the fleas of a thousand camels. Spiders come in the sizes of small mammals. And wherever there are small mammals, there are snakes, poisonous snakes. So make sure you check under your pillow before bed. Oh, and during the rainy season, mud covers everything. Some of you haven't seen your family for years now. Oh, and remember, the Rain Tree Clinic is a place where sick people come at all hours. You are on call 24-7. And the bombers flying overhead are a constant reminder of the potential of horrific violence to everyone you know and love. Your whole country is collapsing. You should not be joyful. Wake up to reality. But alas, he says, alas. I'm afraid my own brain is being infected even as I write because for some strange reason, when I'm at the Rain Tree Clinic, my imagination takes flight. Resolute students, dedicated staff, good friends, and a community serving each other, no matter the cost. Ah, yes, he says, that's the secret sauce, a community serving each other, no matter the cost. Truly one of the principles of heaven. And then he closes with this. He says, hmm, so could there be some truth to the rumor after all? And that's the question I would close my message with today. I wanna to leave it with you. He's risen, he's risen indeed. Could there be some truth to the rumor after all? See, every week at church, I see a husband who has lost his wife. I see a mother who has lost her son. I see a friend who has lost his legs. I see a wife whose husband walked out on her. I see a student who comes uh, on his own because his parents don't believe. I see a brother in Jesus who lost his hearing as a child. Last week I watched as one of my friends, uh, Steve, who's going through chemo right now, came up front because he just wanted to be in the house of the Lord while his body was weak. He came up to pray and he, couldn't, he couldn't kneel. So one of his brothers, a stranger, but his brothers grabbed a pillow for him, laid it down on the ground, helped his sort of shaking body to the ground. It was a hard moment, but a beautiful moment. Because see, I know Steve and I know all these people that I just, I just listed off to you. And I know that in every single one of these situations, I watch my friends every week 
Smile in the face of death. Stand courageously in the face of suffering and sing hopefully in the face of great pain because the gospel is making them more beautiful. And they know how temporary this pain is in the grand scheme of eternity anyways. So he is risen. He is risen indeed. Christians have been claiming this for thousands of years and it's made many of us more beautiful than we deserve and also the world more beautiful than it was before. So could there be some truth to the rumor after all? I think so. And my prayer this Easter uh, is simple. God, it happened then, it can happen again. And as we uh, partake communion together, and then worship, I just ask, I'd ask you to reflect on that today. It can happen then is my declaration of historical belief in the gospel event, died, buried, and risen from the dead. But it can happen again. That's my personal confession of need because I need resurrection in my life now. I cannot do this on my own and I know you can't either. So uh, let's just take a moment Let's reflect on something beautiful, this beautiful idea of a resurrection, this beautiful savior that we have. Wanna sing a few songs together after that. I'd ask you to stay, to sing. The rugs are open, the pillows will be there. Come pray for your church, come play, pray for your friends, come pray with your spouse or pray over your kid. Or hey, if you're struggling today, come bring your Good Friday pain and suffering, come bring your Black Saturday death and darkness and put it before the King of resurrection. Because he is risen. Indeed he has, indeed he has. And I believe that the rumor is true after all.